The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to The Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. We're very pleased to have with us on the show, Luca De Pauli, who covers distressed debt for Bloomberg News in London. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're also delighted to welcome Sharon Chen from Bloomberg Intelligence in Singapore. We'll be coming back to Sharon in a little bit to talk about SoftBank, a big name that everyone's watching, so do stay with us. But first, Luca De Pauli with Bloomberg News. You've been digging deep into distressed debt. There's a lot of it about. Let's talk about your latest scoop. A $64 billion pile of debt from some of the biggest companies has suddenly come to light. It was hidden. You found it. What's the story there, Luca? So uh, a colleague and I um, have been through all of the uh, latest um, filings from the US where um, many companies have for the first time disclosed using arrangements called supplier financing. Supplier financing is effectively uh, a form of financing where you pay your suppliers later, often with the help of a financial intermediary or a bank. Um, and by doing so, you increase the amount of cash that you have. You basically suspend your liabilities for a period of time and you end up um, being more cash rich as a result. Uh, they were forced to disclose it um, by FASB, which is the uh, body that is basically in charge of accounting rules in the US. Um, and similar rules will come into effect for other companies around the world. But this is the first time we've had a really good look at how um, many companies use this and how aggressively they use it. And I think we were kind of surprised by how many companies were doing it and the amount of supply chain financing that was going on. So then just break it down for supplier finance. Um, you kind of describe it, but how does it work in really basic terms? Do I do I get someone to supply something to me and I pay them later? And, and then in the interim, I'm cash rich because I actually have the money myself. What's the story? I don't, I'm not sure I understand. Sure. So, so the, the most the most like basic way I like to think about it is um, if you've got a supermarket and a supermarket has, you know, there's a hypothetical supermarket has suppliers, let's say that they're farmers. And um, the original idea of this was that the farmers might want to get paid in sort of 10 days or immediately, but the payment terms from, you know, the supermarkets, so someone like a Tesco in the UK or, or a Walmart in the US, um, you could reduce the amount of time that it took um, for that payment to be made by getting a bank to come in between and pay the supplier earlier. So the farmer, rather than waiting 90 days for the eggs he's given, he can get it in 10 days and he pays a small discount. He gets paid, sorry, a small discount by the lender. And then the lender gets paid in full um, when the invoice is actually due. Um, that's sort of like the most sort of vanilla and basic um, uh, form of supplier financing um, and a hypothetical example. 
but it's been taken to sort of new and extreme heights based on the stuff that we've seen um, disclosed in the reports uh, to sort of, you know, far longer payment terms and, you know, uh, an altogether different transaction than the one I described there. So in basic terms, it's just a, like a bridge. Um, you, I, I need some something from somebody. Um, the bank will come in and, and just bridge that transaction, offering money to the supplier. Yeah. So the supplier, um, uh, the supplier gets paid early. They take a small hit, um, depending on the discount rate, the prevailing interest rate, um, uh, and then they can get their money quicker, which is what a, a lot of them want. Um, yeah, so that that's the basic idea, um, but it's been sort of it's gone a, a little bit more extreme than that um, in the past sort of ten years. And what kinds of companies are we talking about? You mentioned Tesco. But are we talking about big, you know, household names in the US? So yeah, I mean, um, we're talking about uh, Philip Morris. We're um, talking about uh, Cigna, which is an insurance company. A lot of auto parts companies, um, uh, Dr Pepper, Keurig, uh, 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 Keurig, Dr Pepper, even. Um, a really large um, swathe of different companies, Boeing, um, around 70 or 80 that we found inside the S&P 500. I'm sure if we expanded our universe and looked through even more 10 Qs, um, then we could maybe find some more. But my colleague um, Nicola White and I are pretty fed up of looking through them, to be honest. Um, so we might just stick with those. But so you talk about it's getting more extreme. It's not just um, let me a million dollars for a week or something it's now gone out much much further so it's real like long term what's the term we're talking about yeah so i mean it's not really totally clear from um the filings that we have so fasb has compelled um companies to give a certain amount of information but not as much information as some people would have liked um so we have some idea of how long some programs are but there are quite a few that seem to go to 360 days um which when you think about it is is a crazy payment term to accept. Effectively, the supplier is saying, like, I'm happy to be paid in 360 days. And um, then a, a, a financing party comes between them and can, and, and can pay them earlier. But, you know, you think about that as sort of like, that's basically what they've agreed to. It's kind of a crazy um, uh, thing for the supplier to agree to. And then on the other side, what that can do is create this sort of debt, debt-like, whatever you want to call it, effect, where people are, you know, suspending their um, payables for longer and then for increasing the amount of cash that's generated the company, um, despite not, you know, that not being due to anything organic, sales or something like that. Effectively, if you think about it for yourself, if you were, you know, if you could um, delay all of your liabilities, your mortgage or whatever, by a year, um, you'd have more cash, but you wouldn't actually be richer. And that's effectively what a lot of companies seem to have done here. Um, so, yeah, it, it's more extreme than I would have anticipated. Um, and the financing is a lot longer than sort of what you'd normally associate with um, something in the accounts payable line in a set of companies' accounts. It's not sort of invoices um, waiting to get paid. It's 360 days long. And just um, so people understand, what is FASB? You mentioned that earlier. FASB is um, uh, basically the body that looks after um, accounting regulation in the US. Um, so they, they, they govern US GAAP. Um, uh, so they're in charge of instituting new rules. And this is one of the new rules they instituted. Actually, interestingly, at the, at the behest, at least in part, of um, ratings agencies um, who said, like, look, we don't have enough disclosure 
around this um, sort of debt-like line item, we need more disclosure because if we don't have it, then we can't rate these companies properly. You know, and a lot of the ratings agencies have been trying to sort of guess around this for a while, um, you know, and have general rules that like anything beyond 90 days should be considered sort of debt um, and anything less than that, you know, it wouldn't be considered debt for the uh, company with the supplier financing program. Um, but yeah, that, that's sort of the, uh, why this has come up now. Um, the industry itself has been growing for years and years and years, but the reason that we wrote the story now is because it's the first time we've got a decent data set and we don't have everyone. A lot of companies haven't reported yet, but we've got a decent data set. We can see roughly how big this uh, form of financing is and it's pretty big. But it could be more than $64 billion. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's really hard to know. I mean, there is um, there are some trade bodies who try and take a stab at how big supply chain finance is. One figure um, from a sort of a trade um, publishing uh, house called uh, BCR, um, uh, they uh, reckon that two point two trillion dollars of supply chain finance was issued globally last year. It's just a sort of, you know, that's a poll of sort of people within the market that they've done. Um, and it's not always totally clear. You know, it's not an easy number to get a hold of. Um, but that's a huge uh, amount of financing. Um, and I don't think it's sort of impossible based on what we found in what's still like a relatively small um, subsection of companies. But the companies we've talked about, Philip Morris, Tesco, I mean, they're not companies that are in trouble uh, at all. They've, they've got cash. They can, you know, this is just like administration, really. I mean, it does, doesn't seem like a problem. But when could it be a problem? Does it does it become an issue for weaker companies um, when credit gets tight? I mean, how, how does it all unravel in, 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 a, in the worst case scenario? Yeah, sure. So one of the problems I have is because I'm a distressed debt reporter. Everyone sort of panics when I bring them up. And I don't think that's like necessarily the case here. I don't think, you know, people are going to, you know, fall apart under the weight of um, the supply chain financing programs. But you do have some pretty, you know, sizable examples where supply chain financing has played a really important role, not so much in the US, but definitely um, in Europe. So, I think it's still the UK's biggest bankruptcy ever was Carillion. And Carillion um, collapsed almost instantly um, uh, in in 2018, I think it was. Yeah, 2018. Um, when uh, a lot of a lot of the reason that it was so leveraged and its leverage was kind of disguised was because it was using supply chain financing really aggressively. So rather than it coming up in their sort of debt line of their accounts, it came up in their accounts payable. And analysts kind of knew something was going on, but they didn't have a really good idea of, you know, quite how leveraged this company was. And in the UK, generally companies go into administration and then, you know, um, restructuring advisors come in and try and find a solution for the company. Here, the company just went straight into liquidation because there was no recovery to be had. It was just, you know, they basically one of the best recoveries they've had. We still don't know the number is, is suing the auditor who signed off on a lot of this stuff. Um, then there's a company called Abengoa. Um, which had several brushes with um, uh, insolvency over the years, like a Spanish company, which did some creative accounting. Um, there was, uh, you know, there was some supply chain finance there. And then the example that people talk about a lot is Greensill, which although really the problem at Greensill was kind of more exotic than supply chain financing and more to do with, you know, future receivables or, or whatever, 
that was one of the businesses, you know, one of the businesses they operate and certainly the business they were most vocal about was, you know, doing supply chain financing for big companies like um, uh, General Mills um, or, or, or Vodafone. Um, so, so yeah, like uh, it has been a problem in the past. And I guess the real issue is like, if you got into a situation where banks were less likely to give you credit, this is something they can pull immediately. It's not like a facility. It's not like a, a loan or a bond where you have a maturity and you know you've got this capital until a certain date and then you got to pay it back. This can just be pulled pretty much whenever, um, depending on you know the specific contracts, which you know I'm, I'm not really privy to. Um, this is mostly almost entirely uncommitted as far as I can tell. Um, and that's kind of a risky sort of thing to happen with have within the capital structure, because, you know, if all of a sudden you've got to accelerate all of those liabilities you've extended for 360 days, you're going to find yourself incapable of doing that in a lot of cases. You know, do you have a revolving credit facility that can cover that? Do you have cash in your bank account that can cover that? Maybe not. Um, and in a tighter credit market, it's, you know, while it doesn't seem like it's likely to happen to, you know, these big companies that we've been talking about, it seems likely that it could happen to someone um, as banks step back from from lending to corporates. And you mentioned rating agencies. Is it a, a ratings issue that some of those bigger companies liable to a downgrade because of this stuff, you think? Potentially, um, but it's, it, it, it's a hard one because um, the, how you characterize this is still pretty hard to do based on some of the disclosures. I mean, we've spoken to a number of people from from ratings agencies and, you know, interested investors. Um, and they say, like, well, there's just not really enough disclosure to make, you know, sort of hard and fast. Like, OK, we think that there's actually a few more turns of leverage on there. So we're going to knock you down um, a notch or whatever. Um, but I, th I think it, yeah, it, it's quite feasible that it will happen to someone of the hundreds of companies which are going to have to report this over the next few years. Um, as you know, the the rules outside of the US get implemented as well. Um, so yeah, that 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 is a real possibility. Um, and uh, the other thing that is going to happen is credit is not only becoming more scarce, but as a result of being more scarce, is getting more expensive. Um, and one of the things that we're starting to see happen is like suppliers who remember in this transaction actually bear the cost of the financing. They're the ones who get paid earlier for um you know a smaller amount than what they're owed are looking at instead of like you know oh it's only a couple of percent or whatever with the rate, way rates have gone up recently are now looking at a far larger chunk of their invoices being spent on financing for you know what although may be sort of like helping the supplier is also in a lot of cases definitely helping the larger company um which is sort of an interesting roundabout way of financing yourself right and the banks presumably are making a lot of money on this yeah i i mean it was it's it's not a very risky form of lending um it's as i say we don't have all the contracts for all the different um for all the different uh uh agreements that are with the parties but i would wager um uh that you know they're in a pretty good position nobody really wants to sort of renege on their debts it's very short term so it's sort of, you know, you're, you've got that sort of, you're temporally senior, as some people like to say. You're at the front of the queue because you're the first people who are going to, you know, get paid um, uh, out of a company. So, so yeah, it, it's considered like quite unrisky uh, um, in a lot of cases. 
Um, there are also uh, examples of people who who buy this as investors, not just the banks that are doing it, but from people I've spoken to in the market, a lot of this is done by sort of the the corporate banks of a particular company, the, the you know the sort of relationship banks. They're the ones who are providing the financing, and yeah, it's probably sort of a fairly unrisky way to provide credit um, uh, to the suppliers, but you know also to an extent the larger company with the uh, with the program. Great stuff, Luca De Pauli from Bloomberg News. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Read all of Luca's scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. Moving on to another big topic, as I mentioned earlier, we're very fortunate to have with us Sharon Chen, who covers a whole load of things, infrastructure, telecoms, utilities across Asia for Bloomberg Intelligence based in Singapore. How's it going over there, Sharon? Great, James. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So there are a number of names that we're going to focus on in particular. But before we do, what's the mood on the ground over there? Are people upbeat about the economy where you are? Um, I think Singapore is obviously a bit more exposed, but um, I, I think Southeast Asia, there's a lot of talk about Southeast Asia in general being a safe haven, you know, if, you know, the global economy slows down. Okay, interesting. So let's start with a big one that you cover, SoftBank. We hear about them all the time. The news isn't always good. First of all, let me ask, what is SoftBank? Why are they so important? So SoftBank is um, a very high-profile investment holding company that's focused on investing in startups in the technology sector. So it's always making headlines, right, in terms of what they're investing in, whether it's it's WeWork, whether they're trying to IPO arm. And in the credit space in particular, it's a very large bond issuer. So they've got about $40 billion odd of bonds outstanding. And and that's why I'm, I'm very, very focused on this company. So it's one of the biggest issuers. They're based where, in Japan? Yes, it's based out of Japan. Okay. Um, they were recently downgraded. There was lots of news about that. Uh, what what led to a weakening credit credit profile at the bank? Um, so S&P downgraded it to double B. Moody's has it at BA3 with negative, out, negative outlook. Um, I, I guess this is going back a bit, but back in 2021, we saw SoftBank really ramp up investments through SoftBank Vision Fund 2. Um, and obviously, starting from last year, we've seen rising interest rates and all the technology stocks come under pressure. More recently, we've got Silicon Valley Bank um, collapsing, and that has reduced liquidity um, for all these startups. And so <clears throat> the SoftBank Vision Fund has really racked up some investment losses. Um, in, in the past year, it was about $38 billion worth of investment losses. Um, and so <clears throat> SoftBank has had to sell some of its um, other better quality assets to shore up its balance sheet, its liquidity. And, you know, it, it used to own close to, I think, 24% of Alibaba. And now they've monetized almost everything. And that's by far the strongest. So the po portfolio quality for SoftBank has, has really suffered in the past couple of years. Interesting. So what's the near-term risk, Sharon? Is it manageable? Um, yes, actually. So even though it's just been downgraded, the company is actually in a fairly good position, at least in the next couple of years. It's got about $30 billion worth of cash. It has proven that it has good funding access, especially to the Japanese yen market. Um, and it's also lowered its adjusted loan to value to 24%. So, so that's a fairly healthy level. And what are we looking for next? There's an IPO in the works. Can you talk a bit about that and how it'll affect them? 
Um, yes, so I mentioned earlier an IPO of ARM. So ARM is a chip designer and you know, if you've been following the news, NVIDIA and some of the other chip companies out there have really rallied very strongly because there's so much excitement about AI in general. And, and so there was some concerns about execution risk, just given the IPO market hasn't been the strongest this year. But, you know, looking at how the, the, some of their peers are doing, um, I, would, I believe the company could be in a position to IPO and its target is by the end of this year. So what happens after that? Are they going to increase investments? Are they going to do share buybacks? So, um, you know, all else being equal, obviously the ARM IPO would be positive, right? It would lower LTV, it would improve liquidity and also the portfolio quality. But then um, I don't expect SoftBank to really sit on a mountain of cash and not do anything, right? So the company has been, if you follow their earnings call previously, they keep talking about being in a defensive mode. Um, but now, um, in the latest one, they, they do talk about, you know, there could be potential opportunities out there and they are in a good position to, you know, pivot away from the defense mode when they see the right opportunity. So the question, I think, from a credit perspective is how fast will SoftBank ramp up their investments, you know, because, you know, the macro backdrop isn't, isn't the strongest yet. So that's one thing to watch. Um, uh, SoftBank is also prone to doing a lot of large share buybacks. So that could be another use of proceeds. And obviously, if they use some of the proceeds to repay that, that would be great. And the medium to the long term, I mean, they've got um, you know, a large portion of the portfolio in startups within the SoftBank Vision Fund. Um, what, what's going on there? So I mentioned earlier, they've sold off Alibaba. They've, they did ramp up investment in the Vision Fund. So if you look at the portfolio now, uh, compared to pre-COVID, pre-COVID, I think Alibaba, which is rated single A, is it made up about half of SoftBank's portfolio. And now that's close to almost zero. And you've got SoftBank Vision Fund at about 40% of the portfolio. Majority of these are unlisted, um, less mature companies and obviously higher risk, especially if you compare to the likes of Alibaba. So um, there's just less visibility in terms of you know how they can um, realize some of you know monetize some of these assets in the future. And the other thing that has been happening is there's been quite a few senior management changes in SoftBank in the past couple of years, and could potentially we, we could potentially see some you know shifts in investment strategy. That's another uncertainty. I mean, there's been talk about SoftBank looking at private credit, for example, which is a brand new area for the company. Is that a good thing for them? I and mean, we hear so much about it. I'm based in New York, obviously, and um, we hear we hear about private credit being the big new thing. I mean, what 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 does SoftBank, you know, what's their edge in private credit? Well, so uh, as I mentioned before, they haven't really done it, um, but um, obviously, I, I think they would leverage their know-how and their expertise in the technology sector already to to branch into this this market. So we'll we'll have to see how how they fare. Because it sounds like it's getting quite competitive. Definitely, yeah. Okay, so um, the other company we were going to talk about, Rakuten, also in Japan, another very interesting situation. Um, but before we dig into the details, just let us know. Tell us, uh, Sharon, what what is Rakuten, and um, you know why do we care about them? So Rakuten is really a conglomerate. It, it's one of the leading e-commerce and fintech players in Japan. Um, but the reason why I'm, I've been watching it closely is actually an, a fairly new business. So it, it entered the domestic mobile market about a couple of years ago and has really been struggling there to, in terms of to gain market share. And they've been making, um, still they're still loss making after two years. Um, it's nowhere as big as SoftBank in terms of you know their bonds outstanding, but we have seen a lot of volatility on, in their bonds and that's because of um, Rakuten's poor liquidity position. 
the company has just um, raised um, about 300 billion yen of equity. But even so, their five-year CDS is currently at um, above 500 basis points, which is pretty much double SoftBank's, even though they're both rated double B by S&P. So it's, it's a, a fairly volatile name. They have a ton of debt coming due over the next few years, right? Yes. So um, I, I mentioned the, the equity raise. I think that should tide them over until maybe sometime in 2024. But then between mid-2024 and mid-2025, they've got um, over $5 billion worth of bonds coming due. And, and that was really the reason why some of their bonds were trading at distress levels and still are. Um, and because the company is still free cash flow negative due to the mobile losses, so, so they, they have to rely largely on um, refinancing to meet these maturities. Will they be able to, able to do that or will they default? So, I mean, I mentioned earlier, it's the leading e-commerce and fintech player, right? So it's hard to see the company really defaulting because they do have good quality businesses. Um, ideally, you know, they've bought time to stabilize the mobile business until, say, sometime in second half of 2024. And the company is working hard on this. So ideally, you'd want them to stabilize the mobile business so that the market feels better about them and they can refinance the bonds that are um, coming due. Um in terms of the mobile business, the issue here, I think, is really their poor network quality. So to give you some idea, even after two years, um, Rakuten only has about 2% market share. And I think generally the perception is that the network quality is really subpar compared to the incumbents. Um, so Rakuten is taking steps to do this. So for example, it came up with a new roaming agreement with KDDI, which is the second largest um, mobile player in Japan. And it's expanded the roaming to cover high traffic districts and major cities. They've removed speed caps. So I, I do think this would help. But as we know, with a lot of consumer-facing brands, it takes a while to shift consumers' perspective. So, so you know, we're going to watch the next few quarters, but I think it's, it's still going to be slow going, but um, hopefully the, the, there would be some improvement. They've also cut mobile capex, so, so that should at least help um, reduce the... The, the cash bleed in the near term. And we should expect from them some liability management transactions over the next few months or years. Um, so the equity definitely helps, right? Um, I mentioned that it should tie them over until sometime in 2024. The company is also still looking to sell um, assets. They've been very active here. They listed um, Rakuten Bank actually earlier this year when you know the whole thing about Credit Suisse and Silicon Valley Bank was going on. So valuation was lower than expected. So they, they did raise some funds there. They've um, sold some minority stakes. Um, they've also sold a 20% stake in Rakuten Securities to Mizuho. Um, going forward, um, what they're trying to do is IPO Rakuten Securities as well. But I think they might need to wait for the market to recover somewhat so that the valuation might be closer to what they sold to Mizuho. They have another 88 billion yen of investments on balance sheet which can be sold. But again, these amounts might be still small compared to the bonds that are coming due. And when you step back and look at the entire capital structure, are there opportunities there for investors now or should investors be very cautious, do you think? Um... <laughs> That's a, that's a very tough question. So in terms of um, the um, bonds that they have outstanding in hard currency, they've got you know the 2024, late 2024 bonds, senior bonds that are coming due. Um, and they have some perpetual 
notes as well. So I would say the perpetuals definitely are the higher risk ones, you know, because they can defer the, these. And um, if, you know, the mobile business continues to struggle, there's obviously a high risk that, that they might not call this while, while the senior bonds are structurally stronger. Okay, great. So two big names to watch, uh, SoftBank and Rakuten. Thank you very much, Sharon Chen of Bloomberg Intelligence. You can read all her great analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal. Do check it out and hope to see you soon, Sharon. Thanks, James. And thanks again to Luca DePaoli from Bloomberg News. Read all of his great distressed debt scoops on the Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. Join us again next week on The Credit Edge. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.